At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. Making the case go cold for over 50 years. Using the facts from 1967, we reopen the case for the lost boys of Hannibal. as you needs an old immovable object like me you can bet as sure as you live well welcome back to the lost boys at hannibal podcast i'm your host frankie cambaletta and you know what's coming next with me as always <laughs> chris ketters chris how are you sir doing good man it's it's like what september it is my birthday month. It's Virgo season. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's getting cooler out. It's uh, getting to that time of year. It's uh, it's crazy that we've been doing this over a year now. And uh, we've, we've gone a long ways. July 29th was our one-year anniversary from the, from the day the first podcast left. I think our first month we had 100 downloads. Last month we had close to 8,100. So... Yeah. You can see how much the podcast, and we're very transparent with our numbers. Um, please continue to share our podcast. Please continue to get the message out there because it is working. And in some fun news, me and Chris were actually in together in Hannibal, Missouri this weekend. And we were doing a lot of scouting and eating of mozzarella sticks <laughs> from my favorite place, the Mark Twain Brewery. Yeah. Uh, which they still don't know me, Chris. The girl, the the waitress that was wa- so sweet, such a great server. Um, and she, <laughs> you asked her, and there was, she was like, "I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, I said, Does, has anybody called him Frankie's mozzarella sticks yet? And she's like, "Who's Frankie?" <laughs> He's Frankie. <laughs> Which is actually the title that I want to go by now is Who's Frankie's Mozzarella Sticks? You know, um, I, you know people like want bronze bust, Chris. I just want um, a name of a food that I love. But, well, uh, and here's the thing, Frankie, is that you've drove people there now. I've gotten I messages have. from people saying, what was the name of that place? And I tell them, oh, it's Mark Twain Brewery. It's on Main Street. And they're like, yeah. we're going there tomorrow to have mozzarella sticks. It's like, awesome. As, as they should. And there's a person that came from Texas. Mm-hmm. They drove all the way to Texas for those mozzarella sticks. I'm sure they came to see Hannibal, too. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure top three. Mod sticks. Well, Frankie, let's go ahead and hit that up real quick. Is that the mod sticks? Well, the, we already <laughs> did that. But uh, another thing that we found, I found interesting. I mentioned this to you the other day when we were together. Was that uh, we have people that are specifically coming to Hannibal now for the purpose of seeing these places that we're talking about, like the per- people from Texas. Um, there's people from all over the United States because obviously nobody really wants, nobody's flying or nobody really wants to fly at this point in time. So a lot of people are doing, you know, road trips and a lot of people are road tripping to Hannibal. And uh, so not only is it cool to see that tourism still coming in and that we can help with our podcast to bring that tourism to Hannibal, but on the flip side of that, 
we were up at Lover's Leap when we were together, and I took a picture. It's on our discussion group, but there's actually some uh, some things on the memorial for the boys now. And I know specifically there's two little pumpkins on the memorial that were put there. And I was t- had a message come to me that says, hey, I just want to let you know we put some some pumpkins, some little plastic pumpkins up there because I think the boys would like that. And uh, so we've decided to put those there. So it's really cool, and I, I, I appreciate that. And I know Frankie appreciates that to have um, people going out of their way to, to show respect to the boys and, and the thing that we work so hard to, to try bringing them home with. Yeah. I mean, anything that, you know, if you're in the area, I mean, don't feel foolish leaving flowers or, or any kind of like knickknack or like a toy car or whatever, you know, cause I think that what that does is it symbolizes that, you know, we were up there, Chris, and, and we had a couple uh, colleagues of mine that were with us and colleagues of now the show that are, are, are we're, as we set to put boots on the ground and do our, our scouting, we're bringing these people out that are our sounding boards, people that we trust creatively to get this um, documentary off the ground. And I think that one of the special things about that is that when you're on Lover's Leap, it is legitimately, you can be up there. And I would say within about 10 or 15 minutes, you will constantly see cars driving up, parking, looking out on that beautiful thing. But the first thing they do is they look at those two markers. And when you see that one marker for the boys and you just have all these flowers, and, and I love that they're bringing silk flowers because it could be somebody that's like out of town that won't be able to get back there. Right, mm-hmm. and they don't want the dot that the flowers to fade out, and it's just this for me from an artist's perspective. Is just that symbolic, the the silk flower, right? The the never ending bloom, and and for us, it, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like this is something that we're not saying goodbye to. We're not going to have this season end uh, without the possibility of once again getting closer to finding them. As as we look to the end of this season. Uh, which has been a very interesting season in and of itself, Chris, where we started, where we are. And this episode especially mm-hmm. really digs us into something, a corner, that I, I would think that if you just started listening to us, the number one question you have is, well, isn't it too hard to abduct three boys? That comes up so many times. And I, I can honestly tell you that me and you have talked about that so much. And, and our audience and our viewers and, and our group is just continuing to grow. And we're almost at a thousand people like talking about the Lost Boys of Hannibal. And I want that to be at like a hundred thousand. But, you know, I think that right now it's, it's just a, it's a big story for us. It's a big story locally. And as I see California numbers grow and Texas numbers grow in our podcast, it's really beginning. Although this season is ending, we begin um, a new season next year that's really going to be topical and, and fresh. Well, and Frankie, before I forget, you, you brought up a few things there. But before I forget, one of the things I do want to bring up is that I believe it was about midway through this season, I I posted a... Uh, question for people and I went off of my my percentages and again we're talking about this season getting wrapped up and and my my goal is is what I'm hoping we'll do Frankie I hope you'll ask me the question in our next episode is is what is uh what's those percentages look like after the end of the season after end of season two and so I'm going to be posting those again and I want I want to see what people's feedback is because and we'll talk about this in a little bit a little more but we're going to try, you know, people are off the abduction bus and I'm curious to see what happens at the end of this episode about where they're at with the abduction scenario. So yeah, it is the constant flip flop. And it's, I think if you're just settling in 
and it's kind of funny if you just started the season you're not going to hear this but one day you will and I would advise those people like if I had that if I could go back and do season one episode one again I would say don't put all your eggs in one basket because if you do you might feel shortchanged when you start we started this season as a cold case that the potential that a john wayne gacy a charles ray hatcher somebody a local suspect could have abducted those boys and killed those boys and did something like that and then we went back to the caves and then we went to the construction company (laughs) and we really started seeing that this whole thing kind of come full circle and now where we sit where we stand right now when we were in Hannibal this weekend, I think really started opening our eyes up to it, Chris. And, and without revealing too much, because we're saving that for the finale, I think that I, I do want to. I want you to clue in people as to who might have been there this weekend with us. <laughs> yeah, well, and we'll do that in a second. Um, I, I have to say this real quick. Uh, hold on to it's. You have to hold on to the handrails because this roller coaster is very up and down <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> with all the things going on uh, in this season. Uh, yeah. Before we get to talking about this weekend, because uh, we're recording this actually just you know a little behind the insider studio thing we're recording this sunday night it comes out tomorrow morning so uh, we're you're getting fresh material right now so you yep. listen to this at 7 a.m this is being recorded the night before but um so we did spend, spend some time in hannibal this weekend before we get to that though I do want to point out one of the things I did ask for people, of course, we have that uh, the help wanted list still in our discussion group, and that's still there, and there's still some stuff on there. So if you're not part of the discussion group, I know it's not like a broken record, but make sure to check that out because I update it all the time, and I'll put what date I updated it on. Uh, so it, you'll see if you haven't checked in a while, you'll see when I last updated it. But we do want to tell you that we scratched one thing off the, uh, off the to-do list, off the help wanted list, and we were able to finally find a guy by the name of Charles Stewart, and his name is is uh, kind of synonymous with the boys because uh, he wrote the first book. Before John Wingate, before Soul Speak, before Lost Boys and Animal, there was a book called Sorrow of the Heart that came out in the mid-2000s. And it was by Charles. And he is a Hannibal a local native, and he writes some other books. But he has no books. You can buy a book if you've. If this is the first time you've heard it. You can go to Amazon. They have one for sale for $1,000 right now on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, I mean, you could sell yours. And for, I could. Uh, for ninety nine nine. Right. So, but yeah, and that's where I was trying to get at was that was that we were able to finally touch base with Charles. I sat down with him for about an hour and uh, we, we talked about the different scenarios. Um, someday we'll give you another reveal down the road of of some, some stuff. I don't, I feel so bad that I'm going to cliffhang on that. I should just throw it all together now but I'm, i can't do that right now uh but he has some very interesting stuff that stuff that we haven't talked about in all what 20 some uh, you know 27 episodes or whatever we're at now um but someday we'll get to that but uh so just to let everybody know we have charles stewart's book he also told me that he uh frankie he's going to uh gonna get some more of them printed out so he will have some more available and it sounded like we were kind of working on something where possibly if we as in me and you do a uh, meet and greet in hannibal we'll probably have some of his books available for purchase okay. yeah. so uh just so people yeah. can get the full full wrap of everything that uh is involved with the with hannibal and in the lost boys in particular absolutely and i have no problem having john wingate's book there as well i have no problem with both his books soul speak and you know, Lost Boys and Hannibal, like like we've said 
over 27 episodes again. Like we have, we are all on the same page. We are all trying to do the same exact thing. We may have different theories. We may have different outcomes, but I can guarantee you this, our platform allows us to follow a different algorithm, follow something that trending and tracking, right? As we said earlier in, in the intro of the show, it does look like a roller coaster ride sometimes. And, and, and for some, this season was very informative, very educational, um, wasn't loosey-goosey, wasn't, um, uh, it was a very serious season about how do you dissect 53 years of missing three boys? And when you look at it from that perspective, it's always good to have that hindsight and to have people uh, that you trust. With Charles Stewart, I, you know, there's some stuff that's on that on our thread and in the past, and we've heard numerous things. I will say what I've always said. I think that everybody is entitled to their opinions, entitled to the respect that they deserve on what they believe happened. Because I think right now, we don't know what happened. And everything is probable. And everything is viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from Momo and UFO. <laughs> <laughs> Which it keeps coming up. I keep getting these little messages about it. I'm like, I was thinking, Chris, maybe I'll put on like a little thing for Halloween. And maybe, you know, we can have like an open live night uh, the week of Halloween where people can come in and we'll find a way for them to call in. Yep. And ask questions, and we can do the the crazy, right? The, the, what, what is it, the strange or whatever yeah? Well, and, and, and just, uh, I kind of clarify. I know, yeah, what you're saying there is that you know people have said, oh, what if Momo abducted them, or what if it's UFOs, and those are those are your your and not in left field, but actually outside of the stadium and about three blocks down the street kind of scenarios um, <laughs> that we don't even want to go down those rabbit holes. But right. uh, as you mentioned, we might, that might be something we were looking at for even, for even episode. though Chris, as I stare at you through zoom, I see a poster that says, I want to believe that there's a UFO on it. So I'm like, are you sending me those messages? Do you, do you want me to, um, so uh, I, I think yeah. it's it's definitely, you know, I, but anyway, just to, to stay on track here, we respect a lot of our, our audience and our view. And honestly, it's been very clean on the Facebook. I mean, so many new listeners, so many, you know, old questions. And we have our, our you know, our basically our, our brand stewards, if you will, that have listened to the podcast that we don't even have to answer them. Like we have... Yeah. Um, what is it, Angie? Angie will just be right on top of that. Um, I do want to mention something, too. I, I know one of our administrators, Betty. Betty mm-hmm. had some stuff going on personally, and I just wanted to wish her well and that everything's okay and that she's still a part of our team, yep. the Lost Boys of Hannibal team. And I don't want to put her business out there in the street, but I just want you to know that we're thinking of you and we're praying for you, and we hope everything works out for you. Yeah. Well, and Frankie, that's a beautiful – and I don't know if you meant to segue that, but that is such a beautiful segue because – and I hate to point it out too, but <laughs> if it was, I uh, have a sun behind me. With I like noticed that this, yeah. this hippie sun 1960s thing happening behind me, which is I can cool. send you. I want, I want to believe poster anyway. <laughs> uh, so, but this season has been, and I, I 
I, one of the best things that we did is we made that discussion group because it brought us people like Julie Angel. Julie Angel came to our discussion group. We didn't search her out, and she was the one that first posted some information that went we that not only did it get like you know seventy five likes from the other people in the group, but also it was automatically a phone call to Frankie saying. Uh, we got to get her on the air. And so that's a, a perfect example of what our discussion groups uh, has done. What else are, what also our discussion group has done has brought us somebody that has been a, uh, has known about this for a long time, but his family has known about it even longer. And the family I'm talking about is Tex Yoakum. We mentioned him. We have a bonus episode about Tex. He's a great guy. Uh, and, if you're on our discussion group, you've seen that name, Yoakum. And this time it's not, unfortunately not Tex. Tex passed away a few years ago. But it is his grandson, Rich Yoakum. And he has come, again, to our discussion group. He came to us and said, hey, how can I help? And, and uh, Frankie, it's it's humbling. And I know, I know you can explain it much better than I can. But it's, it's humbling that this weekend we were able to work with Rich in Hannibal. It was, uh, you know, for me, it, 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 thinking back now, like on everything we did, Rich is this person that is completely um, humble, just so humble and so nice and so genuine and also just so smart. Like mm-hmm. he's a pilot. This guy is a pilot and he works for Bear, which we're really hoping to give Bear some, some great press with this. Just because, you know, they are approving some of the stuff that we're wanting to do, and that really helps us. And we'll get into that more on our season finale. But just having, man, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I I brought in somebody as well, uh, somebody from Shift's team. Now, I don't know if she will be on this project from start to go, but this is a person for me that's my sounding board. This is a person that I can always send my work to, and she'll say, I love it or it needs to change, but she never says I hate it. She always says that there's room for growth that we can learn from the experiences. But I don't know for you and and for Lily, who we'll bring on here in a second, um, just for the intro stage, just to kind of have her introduced as we throw pictures up there, you might see this, um, one of our woman leads on the shift team that is basically one of the vice presidents. She's one of our business partners, and she deals a lot with our corporate stuff as well as our film business, our narrative film business. And she's worked on the Lemp film. And so she has that background and that experience as a you know classic actor, editor, animator. She does pretty much everything. When you have a small business like Shift is, we kind of wear a lot of hats. So, But I was just kind of throwing this out to, to y'all before we bring her on was, did, did it feel so... There was just this like nostalgia that I felt that we were looking for the Lost Boys of Hannibal with Rich Yoakum. Yeah. With a descendant of one of the main searchers yeah. from 1967, and that being Tex Yeah, it's you kept saying it, Frankie. You kept saying full circle. You said that a couple times yeah. when we were together, and and it didn't really hit me till afterwards about, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it was, because you had somebody that was so dedicated, and not only dedicated, but, but funny. I, I, I'll tell you this real quick before I forget. 
I, I've gone through a ton of newspaper articles. I'll be honest, if you guys go on newspapers.com and you find the Lost Boys of Han- or, uh, the Lost Boys of Hannibal article from 1967, I have it. So <laughs> you don't need to yeah, worry we don't about need that. Anymore. <laughs> uh, but, but I did come across an article from, from Tex where Tex, Tex was quoted a couple times, and, and they were talking about the last few days of them searching, and they were searching this one big area, and his quote was, is something along I think it was something along the lines of if they if they don't find if they're not here I'm going home. That was his quote in the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's great to have that full circle and having Rich there and you can tell, you know, when you have people, you know, you, you act like your parents or your grandparents and, and I can just almost imagine this is Tex in, in you know, in Rich. Just by his demeanor and how he acts and how friendly and kind and humble he is. So, uh, yeah, it's, it was great to have him there. It was awesome. We all had lunch at my favorite place. And uh, we also had another person that was at that table with us. Because, you know, the first thing I ordered was the Mott Sticks. But <laughs> you guys both got to try them again. But she actually, you know, might be a w- great way to segue her in here. <laughs> what were her feelings on the mozzarella sticks <laughs> from? So with, without yeah. further ado, I have one of my VPs, uh, Lillian McLeod, um, uh, coming on to join us because she was in Hannibal with us. She'll, it's brief, but I just wanted to kind of get some of her feelings on being in Hannibal with us, being at the restaurant and hanging out with us and holding some cameras and stuff. Food doesn't taste good without garlic. And the mozzarella sticks did not lack garlic in the slightest. I think that was something that I've never had on a mozzarella stick, and it made the mozzarella stick amazing. My only regret was sharing the last mozzarella stick with Frankie. (laughs) And I didn't need it. I should have had that whole mozzarella triangle. They're actually triangles. Right. They are triangles. They're not sticks. It is true. They're, they're yeah. Mott's triangles, uh, which is the perfect <laughs> shape. And I think Rich actually said something about the garlic, too. It was kind of funny. So <laughs> so how was your experience with, with us in Hannibal this weekend? <laughs> well, I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again. Happy to par- be part of the search team. Um, well, we drove into Hannibal, Missouri, uh, semi-early on Saturday morning. Yep. Um, I think it was my first time in Mark Twain's hometown. And uh, I highly recommend going there. It has a lot of history to it. it has a lot of kind of heavy feeling about it when you go in it's, there's just a lot it's thick the air is thick with with more with more stuff than just a just a beautiful town it's got a lot of history um i got to see lover's leap for the first time i got to see the disguised yet still ominous entrance to murphy's cave uh you would never you would never know it was there um unless you knew yeah you'd, you'd miss it you'd blink and you'd miss it yeah i'm gonna stop you there i think that that's a good point right chris like a lot of people would just walk down that road and they would see, oh, it's a bluff, it's a cliff. But man, did that hold some secrets in 1967? Was that an area of just a body of wealth of people looking and exploring? Well, and Frankie, you got to think too. And again, going back to the discussion group, I posted a, a now and then picture uh, just a couple days ago, and it showed the picture of what the Murphy's Hill, Murphy's Cave Hill looked like in 1967 compared to today. It's nothing like it was. No, in it's 1967. night and day. It's night and day. So, Lo, what else could you share with us on that this this voyage for you? <laughs> well, uh, well, we got there. Um, we kind of started on the ground, running and gunning with some cameras. Um, kind of just exploring the grounds, talking about the kind of road we want to go down, beginning the documentary process for this podcast. Um, I think that's going to be a really exciting thing for you and Chris and everyone involved um, who's been so invested for so long um, to really kind of like see where you guys continue to go with this and what you can you can uncover still. 
Yeah. Um, I think that's, I'm, I'm a really, really, really fortunate. I feel very fortunate to be a part of that um, from here on, going forward. Um, and then I, you know, I got to speak on, on Rich Yoakum's character as well because um, that he just really stood out to me as a, as a, as a person. I mean, I, I was introduced to Tex Yoakum on the way to Hannibal. Uh, Frankie was able to play that, that bonus episode for me, and I got to kind of hear what, what you, Chris, had to say about, about Tex and who he was. Um, and I think Rich really embodies the same kind of spirit and drive that Tex Yoakum has. He's, he's, really, he's really a great guy, super smart, so kind and inviting, and so open to sharing his knowledge and showing his method and sharing about himself and his life. His you know, white, wonderful, wonderful wife and oh, amazing yeah. kids. Yeah, and speaking of kids, uh-huh. like we had a chance to, uh, so we did some scouting, we did some droning, and I love kids. I have a nine-year-old daughter who she's my world, and these kids came over, and of course, I'm just like, you know, that, that person inside me, like that dad inside me, like, well, get over here and, and look at this drone and, and come over here. And there's this really cool, magical moment where, you know, you have this guy that has this, you know, all these licenses, Chris, all these, like, you know, he's pilot's license, right? He has the FAA vest on. He's got his walkie-talkie. He's looking for helicopters. And it's the real deal. This is not like weekend Mavic droning looking for the lake and, and, and for stuff like that, you know, for some kind of vlog online. This is like the real deal. This is this is what you do when you're trying to search and find people, right? This is the type of drones that we're bringing in here. And he brought in this thermal thermal camera, and you know he was t- it landed, took it apart. These kids ran over, and he was so amazing with them, just showing them and having them hold it. And it was like, here you have this drone that's not cheap, but at the same time he was very careful and just this guy that like was so inviting, even to the children that were so excited about it. And and the kids knew about the Lost Boys. And that was just amazing to me because they were with their grandparents. They, they were from Cedar Rapids, Ohio. And Iowa. this family, Iowa, sorry. Yes. I always get that confused, sorry. <laughs> um, so many states, so many elections. Um, but <laughs> so, yes, yeah, Cedar Rapids. And they come and they stay with their grandparents who live there. And the grandparents basically told them the story of the Lost Boys. Hmm. And so I asked them, I said, you know, that type of stuff. And, and, and so it, it was just this nice, like, kind of conversation that we all had where you had these kids that are a little younger than our Billy and, and Joey and Craig that knew about the story, that knew about, you know, where they went. They went to the forest and they got lost and they were never found. And it was just this interesting perspective from the innocence of a child. And I know that Lily was there for a second, like uh, when she saw all that happening. So I don't know if you had anything to add to that, but um, I uh, also want to just thank you for being there with me, being my sounding board. Um, me and Lily worked on a bunch of films together. We've always been very critical of each other's work for the betterment of it. And this is a person that I would let share anything with and let anybody see. And so we were really able to get out there with some of those cameras I was telling you about, Chris. And, and so, and Lily, I, I got to ask you real quick too, because uh, I think Frankie, we got to make this a, a rule for any time we invite a guest on. And the rule, the rule, the question is going to be this, Lily: is that so? Where do you think the boys are? Hmm. I think I was stuck. I think I'm kind of, I'm stuck in this place of they fell in one of the sinkholes. They're stuck underneath the sinkhole. There might have been a bulldozer involved that somehow blocked them inside and and no one was able to find them. Or they're in you know, some sort of secret part of the cave. There's just some, I know that we all have kind of our, our feelings and emotions around where our percentages, as you say, mm-hmm. like are. And I just... I don't, I don't want them to be, I, it's, it feels weird to say that I want them to be there, 
I don't want them to be there at all. I, I wish that they, that would have sure. never happened. Right. But, um, I that, think, and that's I the hard part, isn't it? Isn't that <laughs> the, mm-hmm. I want to find them, thing. but why do we have to, why we, why do we have to find them like that? Yeah. yeah. But I want, I would love, I, w- I think the sinkhole, I think the sinkhole. Yeah, yeah, that's a so, good one, and that brought that was brought up by Julie Angel uh, a few episodes ago about, mm-hmm. and, and and the good thing even, and I'm glad glad you brought that up because that is something in our season finale, our next episode, I'm going to dig into deeper because uh, not only with what we have coming up with the uh, the boots on the ground effort, but also just some more information that we found from some newspaper articles, and uh, some more research by by Julie, and more digging into the science part of it. We have some more information about that, so I'm really excited to bring that up in our next uh, episode coming up. Awesome, Chris. Well, I just want to thank uh, Lillian for being with us. Uh, yeah. to, I call her McLeod. Um, so that's kind of her nickname <laughs> around. I, I call her McLeod. So uh, I just want to thank you for being on and just sharing your knowledge and being there on the ground with us on the weekend. I know you're living in New York and you came in to, to help us out and stuff. So I really appreciate you, everything you've done. Of so. course, Frankie. Of course, Chris. Again, I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure and uh, good luck. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> well, that was awesome just to have Lily on the ground there, Chris. It was a uh, just an opportunity to be with one of my closest friends and she's been one of my closest friends for a very long time over five years we've been like buddies she's like my little sister and you know i'm her big brother and at times she becomes that mentor and stuff for me but without further ado chris i really want to dive into what you're about to do to the audience again (laughs) um because clearly we like roller coasters on this show and we like flip-flops, so we're basically Disney World. Um, so I, I think we're going <laughs> to flip the script again. Yes. We, we go from Jay Tobin, and we did two episodes on them. And now, Chris, you meet somebody. You listen to an incredible – let me just tell you about this – an incredible six-part podcast mm. that really aligns to – a lot of the same theories. This has got to be one of your best interviews you've ever Thank done. You. I was not a part of this interview. So I, I, mean, I was busy, and you handle it, and it is pro. It is such a great interview. I, was, I wanted it to keep going. It was <laughs> such, he's so intriguing. He's such an intriguing yes. guy. And his passion and his writing ability. Like he, This is an author that he's working on another book now, but truly, truly understands like the pain that goes into it and I love and, and I'm not going to give it away but man did I love how he talked about the the survival guilt of the other family members mm-hmm. and we don't talk about that we really don't uh, so Chris uh, can you tell us a little bit about this well guest? let me tell you about how we got there so one of the things that I always do and I'm sure a lot of people do too and I know you do too Frankie is you're a true crime buff you you like searching for different things and, and obviously my job I'm on the road a lot and so I'm looking for different things uh, to listen to different podcasts and so I came across this podcast and it's called The Long Lost and I went hey Long Lost and so I read the description it talks about uh, about another incident that happened uh, a few years before what happened to our boys and the lost boys of Hannibal uh, was listen to it again uh, I'll explain uh, much more detail in the interview but uh, it's a great great podcast and so the similarities were so common and so similar to what we have going on here in Hannibal that I said we got to get this guy on and his name's Jack Elhai and he is a, an excellent guy to talk to and uh, yeah I think that without much further ado I think we can just jump right in. Yeah, so what you're about to hear is an interview between uh, Jack and Chris talking about his podcast, Long Lost. 
And I'm here with Jack Elhai as we talk about an awesome podcast that if you haven't had a chance to listen to yet, you, you really need to dig in and listen to it, and it's called Long Lost. And Jack, uh, first of all, welcome to uh, another Lost, and that's the Lost Boys Animal. Thanks, Chris, for having me here. It's a really important story that you're working on, and it's good for people like us to get together, I think, and, and swap ideas and impressions. Yeah, definitely. So let's start out. Give me the 10,000-foot overview of the Klein Brothers. Uh, the Long Lost Podcast is about three boys, uh, Kenneth, David, and Danny Klein, who, uh, who were eight, six, and four years old, who in 1951, while walking to a park near their home just a few blocks away in Minneapolis, where I live, vanished. And this was on a Saturday afternoon. They were not ever seen again from the moment they left their house. And um, uh, the Minneapolis police did an investigation, uh, actually a quite energetic investigation for five days. And at the end of the five days, they concluded that the boys must have all drowned in the Mississippi River, which was about, is about a block not a block, a mile away from where their home was. There is really no evidence to support that conclusion other than it was possible. And the boys had uh, in better weather, this happened in November, but during the summer months would sometimes go down to the river to play um, on the bank of the river. Um, two of the boys' caps were found on top of the ice on the river. Uh, it looked more like someone probably had dropped them off a bridge and it landed on the ice. So the police closed their case after that, closed their investigation. And uh, mom and dad, uh, uh, Betty and Kenneth Klein, the parents, were not satisfied with that conclusion. They didn't believe their sons had drowned in the river. They didn't know what had happened to them, but they kept searching for the rest of their lives. And uh, the two of them both died within the last 15 years or so. And uh, the, um, the Klein boys had many siblings, most of whom were born after they died, or after they disappeared, I should say. One who was alive at the time they disappeared. And those siblings have continued looking too. And another aspect of this case is that it was recently reinvestigated um, so 50 years or more after the Minneapolis police stopped investigating by a pair of sheriff's deputies from a county uh, quite a ways distant from Minneapolis in Minnesota. And on their own time, they've done quite a bit. They did everything the police should have done at the time. They aggregated all the material that had been uh, found and did some of their own digging and came to some conclusions and even developed a list of suspects. Hmm. Uh, all and of them were dead, are dead now. Wow. So it, I think you mentioned this was 1951, correct? Yeah. Right. You, you kind of dug into it a little bit, but so it sounded like the police jumped on it. Usually you hear about, uh, we got to wait 24 hours before they go missing or anything like that. But the, it wasn't that case uh, with this with this instance. No, they did wait 24 hours. Oh, the, did they really? The parents reported the boys missing within a couple of hours. And the police told them, we have to wait 24 hours before doing anything. 
It seems and, so. I, we can go into a whole other subject about that. It seems like it's so contradictory because that's twenty four hours you need. <laughs> that's the most crucial twenty four hours. And if if the children had been abducted, that's the twenty four hours they're most likely to be still alive. And um, it, it must have been a common practice in decades mm-hmm. past to to wait that because maybe more children then did run away. And the, the police considered runaways so common that it was the most likely outcome of something like this. You also mentioned it started out by them feeling that they were they fell into the Mississippi River, or drowned in the Mississippi River. When did that mindset get changed from that they drowned to to maybe it was something else, maybe it was an abduction or something like that? The uh, Mr. and Mrs. Klein never accepted it, um, and then. I got involved in the case in the late 1990s. I did a magazine story for a city magazine here in the Twin Cities about it. And in the course of reporting that, I uh, interviewed uh, the um, uh, an underwater um, search expert who, uh, give, who um, given the circumstances of the boys' disappearance time of year, thought it was exceedingly unlikely that they had drowned in the river because no bodies ever turned up. And in this part of the Mississippi River, there's a lock and dam uh, about a mile downstream from where they would have disappeared. No bodies ever turned up. Uh, the only thing that ever turned up in the river were the two camps. Also, quite a bit of aerial um, searching was done using planes over the river. The river was very clear at that time of the year in the parts that were not covered by ice. And there was nothing. You know, they could see tires and toilet seats, and uh, but not the red jackets that the boys were wearing. What I'm hearing is that even though that the family felt that that was not the case and they drowned, it sounded like that the authorities went for maybe 40 years, maybe more, thinking that was it. It was a closed case. They drowned. That's that's it. Is that what I'm is that what I'm yes. gathering? That that was what the police concluded, and um, maybe still conclude. We don't know because there are no um, remaining police records from this case. And wow, it, just so we, threw in a bunch of questions on that. <laughs> you just made me have a bunch more. Well, let me let me point this out: is that th- that's one of the similarities, and that's why we wanted to talk with you in this case with the Klein brothers, is because a similarity with our case is that the police uh, they went ahead and that you know obviously the caves were an issue, but within two days, and when when our lead cave researcher, uh, his name was William Karras, he came into the picture. The police literally handed over everything to that that cave searcher and said it's a cave case we're done and it's never been a uh, actual filed reported missing persons case it doesn't have a file at the Hannibal Police Department um, so it's it's ironic you see that again is that I, I guess that to them was Alcum's razor where they thought well you got a river and, and they and actually on that note it had something to do with bloodhounds too right and that's kind of helped them get to that river aspect right there was during the five days of the police involvement in in their investigation they did uh bring in a dog and a a tracker who um we don't know they were not it was not a police-owned dog uh, but and we don't know how well this dog was trained or or whether the the uh person who was working with the dog knew what he was doing, but the dogs followed a um, quite a long route from the, from the point where someone said they had seen some boys sitting on the curb. Mm. 
and um, covered about seven miles, finally ending at the edge of the river. And um, so that, that was another thing that made the police start thinking about the river and that the boys had gone there. But there was a second track that the dogs, the dog followed as well that went nowhere near the river. Hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's questionable evidence. And when I, when I said earlier that there is no police record remaining, um, I should qualify that because there was an FBI file on the boy's disappearance. The FBI got involved because uh, the Kleins received uh, at least one ransom note. Hmm. And uh, so the FBI got involved in uh, working with the family to try and catch whoever had sent this letter. And in the course of doing that, they accumulated their own, uh, the FBI accumulated its own um, investigative notes and also acquired some of the notes that the Minneapolis Police Department had um, had gathered. And so those were in, I got those that file through a Freedom of Information Act request. And so that was in there. Oh, good. Wow. Yeah. And that's one thing we've done as well. And I've mentioned to our listeners, we've done uh, Freedom of Information Request Acts to our state police departments, to the FBI, to all those. Unfortunately, we, we didn't get to that next step like you did, where we actually got something back from them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in the podcast, and I, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot on this. We talked about the ages, about yours was four, six, and eight were the ages of the boys. Ours is a little bit older. They're 11, uh, 13, and 14. So one of the things that I'm kind of interested about is, have you had anybody ever ask you the question about, well, you know, and let me say this pre- preface with, with this, is that you had people that obviously went to the abduction theory later on in, in, in a little closer to this time frame than back in the, the 50s. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say, it's three boys, it would be really difficult to abduct three boys at one time? Yes, uh, many people have said that. And uh, uh, my response is, well, yes, if you're trying to snatch three kids and and, uh, cram them into a car and drive someplace, that would be difficult. But um, if you are a neighbor, say, it it would not be nearly as hard to lure three boys into your house. And one of the possibilities in the client case is that the boys were lured into a neighbor's house. And so I think that is is much more possible and, and could be done. There was another case that you also mentioned, and it was kind of just a little blurt, but it caught my attention. It had to do with one of the suspects that you said there was a large list of suspects that were created from investigation. There was another suspect that was... Um, he was in kind of the wheelhouse of possible suspects, but then he got, I don't know sure if he got convicted or got charged with uh, another abduction in Chicago. Do you remember the details of all that? Yes. One of the suspects in the Klein case was a Minneapolis park worker who did work at the park that was the boy's destination. And a couple of, soon after, I don't remember exactly how long after, mm-hmm. it might've been a couple of years after the boys disappeared, he left Minneapolis, moved to Chicago, and was then peripherally involved in another missing boys case in Chicago, a case of two brothers and a friend, just like your, your case, hmm. um, who um, were, were missing for a very short time and then their bodies were found, so they were murdered. And uh, he had, uh, the suspect had a connection 
with a person more directly implicated in the murder. And uh, so this suspect was not charged in the Chicago case, but he was, um, he was in the circle of people who were being looked at. And you even mentioned, and I'll have to ask you if you if you don't have that now with you, I'll I'll see if you can track it down later for me. But I'd be curious to see what exactly that case was because I believe those those boys were a little bit older age that were in Chicago. They were more like the age of the the boys you're looking at. Yeah. So uh, that, again, another comparison. And I kind of want to go back for a second. I kind of asked you the question about you know, well, it's three boys, they get abducted. I mean, that's got to be hard. And that's a question we get all the time <laughs> as well. Um, and that's so it's interesting, not only with your case, but also that Chicago case that we're seeing these comparisons with these literally three boys that are being abducted by one person. So or possibly more people, but at least one person. So it makes it very, very appealing that it's possible that abduction is the likely scenario. What what's going on today? Obviously, you you have the podcast, done a lot of research. Uh, you have a book, by the way, is called uh, The Lost Brothers. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that okay. The Lost Brothers uh, came out uh, about a, a year ago um, in 2019, and so it uh, I wrote it, and it came out before the podcast Long Lost began its release. Although I did use a lot of the same material for both uh, both products. And um, they're different, though. Um, uh, You know, writing a book has given me a different way of telling the story than I was able to use in making a podcast. And I really liked being able to tell the story two different ways, two different mediums, and also two different storytelling approaches. Um, So, but there are some people who like to take in the story one way and some people who like another way and some people who like both. Yeah, some people want all the information they can get. Yeah. <laughs> another part that you talked about in one of the episodes of the podcast, and I found it really interesting, it had more to do with the psychological toll that it had on the family. And I believe, is Gordy, was Gordy the oldest son yes. of the family? Is that right? Gordon was the... Um, uh, he was nine years old at the time his brothers disappeared. And he he did experience a lot of guilt because he was supposed to, originally was supposed to go to the park with them to play. But he decided to stay at home to um, fix a, uh, uh, to fix a leather knife uh, pouch that he had. And he was going to meet up with them later. And he was the one who discovered they were missing because he did go to meet up with them later at their meeting place, a big tree on the corner of the park. And they weren't there and he searched the park and didn't find them. And that's when he went home and told his parents. But one thing that I um, realized early on that at least in the case of these three missing Klein brothers, yes, a big part of the story is what happened to them. But another big part of the story is what happened to the family that was left. And so much of the podcast and of the book both focus on the experience of the family in all of the decades afterwards, Um, especially the parents uh, who never stopped looking for their boys, but also Gordon, who is now in his late 70s and thinks about it every day and still, as, as we discussed, still feels guilt and wishes he had done differently and it and it affected his growing up years tremendously and even his outlook on things as an adult 
that's something we haven't really dug in very much, and I, I am very impressed with how you did that on the podcast uh, of taking that family toll of this sort of loss. And they went from, and you brought it's brought up multiple times in the podcast, and I think it's so powerful, is that literally you made a family of three boys become one one son, uh, just like that. You know, mm-hmm. so you you made that such so such a impact on that family that you and it's happened to ours. Our exception to that is there was a lot more of kids already in the situation where they went from a smaller, and then they ended up adding on. In your situation, they ended up having more kids. Was it three more kids after that? Five. Five. Wow. Boys, all boys. Oh wow. <laughs> now, what I was trying to get to with the the psychological impact, if you will, is that it sounded like Gordon had some rebellious years in his teenage years and, and had some some minor issues and that's an effect we've had that kind of also we haven't really dug into that very much but there was family members that had that same scenario where they had some harder times as they grew older and, and kind of had to reflect back on what happened and it's so again uh, you know we can talk about Actually, you have all these podcasts that talk about murders and all that, but there's so many that don't talk about that family toll that that has when something like this happens. Right. It's a crime against the whole family. And I think it's normal. I would consider it normal for a remaining child in a case like that where siblings are just disappear to to have a lot of trouble afterwards and to act out and to get, get into tr- trouble. Uh, as Gordon did, and um, that's just it, it, it tore it, it tore up the family, and it broke the hearts of the parents. And um, I don't know what happened in the cases of your families, but um, the client family continued observing birthdays of the missing boys. Um, would remind the living brothers. Um, always talk about them and kept a box full of their stuff of the missing boys and really made the vanished brothers a big presence in family life. That's something our family we've learned recently that even after the cave searching completed and all the cave searchers went home, the family wasn't done in their search and they spent years and years and years following up possible leads. And that's pretty much the exact same thing that happened in your case, too. It is. And um, in both cases, it sounds like the parents died not knowing what had happened. Mm-hmm. Right. That's really sad. Yeah, it is. Uh, and you hope for the kids that remain and you're in the same situation too. It's just, it's very, very surreal almost that we, that you're seeing this same situation 16 years apart. Ours happened in 67 years and 51, but you still have these family members that are still looking for those answers. So uh, let's go back real quick to the suspects. So that was something that those, uh, the two officers that you talk about, I think they were sheriff's deputies that they talked about, that they were the ones that kind of got the suspect list going, right? Right. There was no suspect list before they uh, assembled all the records they got and did their investigation. And the suspect list they made up had about a half dozen people on it, some whose names they knew and some whose names they didn't know. And um, the primary suspect on the list was a neighbor of the Klein family who lived a block away. And uh, the boys would have, if they were going to cut across yards to get to the park, that was their destination, they would have cut across his yard. And Gordon, the older brother, says they did it all the time. 
and so he he is a suspect and there's the park worker who we uh, mm-hmm. talked about earlier and then uh there was a uh a man a fan, kind of a family friend who got involved in the investigation uh, in a little bit of a strange way that drew the attention of the sheriff's deputies who were investigating and then uh, there were some a couple of guys names not known who were seen um, with some young boys on the day that the Klein brothers disappeared. And uh, it's possible that there was some connection. Mm. Now, one of the other connections that you talk about beyond, well, actually, I'll get to that in a second. Let me go back to this. Uh, So the scenario that you have, though, is that the two detectives or the two deputies that that were working on this suspect list are not part of the jurisdiction where the Klein brothers went missing, correct? Right. They have no jurisdiction, really. Uh, they're from a, a distant county. And um, who does have jurisdiction is a big question in this case. Uh, the Minneapolis police don't consider it to be a case. Uh, they have no open case. Um, they way back considered it a missing missing child case, um, but, but ended the investigation. So in order for the local police department to get involved, now they would have to reopen a case, mm-hmm. reopen a case for which they have no information on, aside from what the podcast includes and what um, what the sheriff's deputies can provide them with. And then uh, it's really not a case for the FBI anymore. Um, there's, a, there's nothing to suggest that the boys were kidnapped, which is a, would have been a federal crime, or, uh, or that any other federal law was broken. So it's in a no man's land. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have to resort to other people through the kindness of their hearts or other kinds of generosity to look into this. Um, the sheriff's deputies doing this on their own time or other organizations like this National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which could uh, investigate something like this and might, I suppose, uh, but um, no law enforcement has jurisdiction. And that has to be, I mean, in, my, in your scenario, I should say, when you have these two deputies that did create a list and kind of has some potential leads, I guess in your mind, when you had talked to them, you were thinking to yourself, hey, this could be our intro where you have these actual law enforcement officials that can contact this other law enforcement agency and say, hey, look at this. Look what we have. <laughs> Go check it out. But I guess that's not the case at all. Yeah, as it turns out, they don't communicate well together. <laughs> it's certainly not the fault of the sheriff's deputies. Uh, We also, um, we meaning me and the producer of our podcast, uh, tried to uh, contact the Minneapolis Police Department about this and got nowhere. Mm. Uh, So they're not a part of the podcast investigation. Um, They've kept very distant from all this. Yeah. Now, do you personally or even with your podcast and with the book, have you... I mean, obviously you have hopes and inspirations that someday they'll pick it up, but I guess until you get that, like you said, that one solid piece of evidence that you can hand to them, I guess right now there's no real process you can go forward with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have much um, optimism that the Minneapolis Police Department will do anything. Um, I do have hopes that a, that a 
private organization like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children will come in and gather some more information that might fill in some of the missing pieces. So, um, you know, it's an awkward spot. Mm-hmm. Now, the official police report said that they were drowned. That was their conclusion, correct? Yes. When did that information get to the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children? Do you know? Well, I, uh, I don't know the exact answer to that question. I do know that when I was reporting on the client case in the 1990s, I contacted the National Center mm-hmm. and they, they knew of the case then and told mm-hmm. me they thought it was one of the oldest, if not the oldest, active missing child case in the United States. They certainly know about it now, um, if they forgot about it in between, <laughs> because um, the two sheriff's deputies have been in touch with them. Well, and it's interesting because going back to our case now, is, and the reason I bring that up is because even though your resolve was by the police that it was a drowning, that was case closed for them, but yet it still ended up getting to the, to the National Center to where ours is kind of like, okay, well, they, they got trapped in the cave, but it never got to that next step of, okay, let's keep this out there and keep it exposed. It's I don't know. I, I guess I just don't know why one case would get that sort of attention and the other one wouldn't. I think um, it happens because someone is an advocate for the case. Okay. And, um, and in the case of the Klein brothers, there have been advocates over the years, not within the Minneapolis Police Department, from, but outside. In addition to the sheriff's deputies that I've mentioned who, are, who re- very recently have taken it up, there was a uh, Minneapolis Parks policeman who did his own investigation during the 1990s. In Minneapolis, the parks have their own police department separate hmm. from the city police force. And so he, and because the boys were on their way to a park, he decided this is something we should look at. And he did quite a bit of work too, interviewing people who were still alive in 1951, police officers, et cetera, who might've known something about it. So he was an advocate who carried it forward for a number of years until the two sheriff's deputies, he handed off all his materials to the two sheriff's deputies who have continued taking it forward. The one thing I do have, and again, I, I'll say this, I think I said it a dozen times now, but I'll say it once more. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Long Lost, I would definitely advise it. It's actually a pretty quick listen. I, I think it's about three and a half hours total, I think. It's, uh, right. It's uh, six, I think six episodes that are all around a half hour. Yeah. Do you have any um, any plans in the future to come back with future updates with that podcast? If something happens... Um, we'll come back with an update. Yeah. So, uh, if something happens in the way of you know, bodies turning up or e- even uh, not going that far, if an investigation is started by an organization, uh, we'll update it. Um, there, there, is some, there are some updates that we could do. Then. And then how about yourself? Are, are you still actively involved with it? Or have you kind of moved on to other projects? Or where are you at right now? Well, I'm actively actively involved in it in the sense that I still get stuff all the time, <laughs> readers and listeners. I just got one yesterday, um, a long email from someone who heard the podcast and you know had all kinds of suggestions, uh, some of them good, for what we should do um, to 
to carry this along. And people who are readers of the book also do the same thing. But um, I am working on a different book now. And, <laughs> sure. And so I'm not um, spending a lot of time anymore on the Klein Brothers case, but I'm still open to hearing about it and receiving stuff from the audience. This is great because, again, we uh, the similarities, I also can let you be an advocate for me because that's uh, something, you, I'm sure you're the same way. Anytime you get information from somebody about something that you didn't know about, it's great. That's that information that we want to have and want to be able to compile together. I mean, same situation with you, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We appreciate that. So that's that's how we're getting it done because you know there's uh, and you've kind of kind of give you a little background. We there's a few books that are out there. Um, there's some really really bad ghost story documentaries that are that are out there too, which is unfortunately not the direction that uh, really helps the case at all. But yeah, it's really coming down to that. For us, we only have one about thirty page uh, report, and it came from William Karras that I mentioned earlier, and he was the lead searcher in the for the cave search. He did a report. But that is it. There, besides that, it's newspaper articles and uh, word of mouth, and that's that's all. So it's a unique case that, and it's, again, it sounds like we have a lot of similarities. That again, it's mm-hmm. not something you can go to the police department and say, "Hey, we need this file," because the file doesn't exist for us. So yeah, yeah. it's um, you know we're doing what what we can to carry all this forward, and even if we advance things by a few feet. Uh, it's it's worth doing. It's important when there's a hole in a family like this to try and fill it. Right. And, and that's the thing, too. And I'm sure you're the same way. We've had it. My goal has always been that if today or tomorrow or in a week this case doesn't get solved... The podcast is always going to be around. So a hundred years down the road, maybe that technology is finally going to be available that that some person's going to be able to go, Hey, we have, we can figure this out now. Yes. That's always the hope. Always. Yeah. Again, the book, give us the book, give us the podcast, give us, give us the rundown real quick. The book I wrote about the Klein brothers case is called the lost brothers, a family's decades long search uh, published last year. It should be easily available. Um, still, and then the podcast, uh, which I did in, um, in a production by Twin Cities PBS, is called Long Lost. All right. Well, Jack, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. And we look forward to hopefully talking again in the future. Yes. Thank you, Chris. And good luck in your investigation. Well, I could say in my lifetime, Chris, doing advertising and marketing and software and all these things that the one thing that we always look for is wow factor. And I have to tell you, man, like, I don't know if the audience is with me that just listened to that, but man, Jack is an incredible podcast host. You could tell from a guy that was a, I guess a journalist, right? Chris, mm-hmm. he, was, he was a writer. I mean, he is a writer. Um, he's just putting books out left and right. And just his tone and, and, and for him to have his own setup, you could just hear the quality, right? Like, it was a great interview. Because um, sometimes we can't always depend on people to, like, they're not podcasters. So, yep. like, they're coming through there. But, man, the audio is so clean. And the story, man, is heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching because it's two different things that, that I, man, I found myself really, like, choked up at times, too. Because I, I kind of think about, like, my siblings. And I kind of think about, like, man, I... I cannot fathom and I can't even thread their shoes to the pain 
that those kids must have gone, especially the nine-year-old that was at home and he was fixing the sheath for the knife. And, you know, his whole life he has a survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. And that too, and just like Minneapolis in general and their police departments and just that case is so like, they just want it to go away. Yeah. And that's just unfortunate because here we have three lost boys and I guess that's what really attracted you to this podcast, too. Well, in listening to when, and again, I, I've said it multiple times in, in the interview, but you have to listen to it. It only takes like three and a half hours to listen to. It's a quick listen, uh, but it's really, and in, in, in if you've listened to all of our episodes, you'll hear, you'll be saying what I was saying, where it was like, uh, wow. Are you kidding me? That that's what happened in our situation. That's what's happening in Hannibal. So yeah, that's that's the one thing that really attracted me. And I was like, man, I just need to talk to this guy and, and have our listeners know what that was like, and that there are, are other comparisons out there in the world like this. And one of the things I didn't mention in the interview, but I kind of want to talk about now, is just the some similarities. You know, you had you had them both both on the mississippi river they they were both by accidental death i mean the minneapolis police plot believe that they drowned in the river to where our case they believed that they got lost in caves it come to find out after the fact now we have in this minneapolis case you have suspects and you have different different possibilities and he didn't give it away and i won't either because i highly encourage you to listen to it but there is one suspect in particular that is so compelling that it's almost like that's that's your guy right there so uh, again listen to that because it's very good um and then the last thing of course is that's three boys i mean you have a little bit younger boys in minneapolis but you still have three boys in the situation that uh, were were just that disappeared, and again, that goes back to something I said: is that hey, you know, we have all these people saying, "Well, what's the possibilities that three boys are going to go missing or get abducted by a single person?" And we're seeing examples of that. And not only do we see examples of that in 1951 in Minneapolis, but also mentioned in another case that we have as well. Yeah, this this podcast is kind of like that. You you mentioned roller coasters earlier in the podcast, but this podcast is more like the pirate ship. Do you remember that ride? <laughs> yeah, kind of like it goes one side and then it just swings back to the other side. Great um, ride. Yeah, it is. I've I've done them all. I've done Excalibur at Six Flags and lived because um, <laughs> God knows who puts those rides together. But uh, when you when you look at this episode too, when Jack was talking a lot about. Um, the fact that he would do an update that, man, he stumbled on some very similar cases and the cases that we have always been very intrigued behind. Cases that, you know, the possibility, the realm, right, of probability versus possibility. Two very different things. The You mentioned Occam's Razor, uh, the least amount of assumptions in their case. And, man, the, the thing that's that he does mention and then if you just listened you know i don't know if you always get that pit of your stomach like we're like well everybody that was a suspect's dead now so you know can it ever really be solved you know is the question can it really ever be closure because you still have a lot of siblings i think they had five more siblings Mm -hmm. um, that are out there that might not even have known their their three brothers and I don't know, man, it's just, it's heart wrenching because like, I just don't understand why people like this exist, that they would 
cause so much harm, irreparable harm. And the aspect that Jack took on the loss that the family in and of itself took for me is meaningful because we don't hear about that. We are always about glorifying like serial killers and all these different people and making them like some kind of like super weird hero in an alternate universe. And we never talk about the victim as much as we should. And a lot of times we don't talk about the victim because we don't have a lot of history on them. They died young. And the second thing about that is we don't talk about the the ones that are left behind because that's a whole other thing, Chris. That's a whole other thing. Like what, what the hoags had to have dealt with, what Tim had to have dealt with, what Dee Dee had to have dealt with to her dying, die, dying day, to what the Dows had to deal with. You know, we don't talk a lot about the Dows. There's, the Dows are very quiet in our universe. And it's something that we're still that help wanted list there. You know, who do you know a Dow is a question that I have. Because after hearing Jack's words about what those families must have gone through, I mean, you know that Craig Dow's mom was proud of him. You just know. Like, she just wanted her boy back. And it's unfortunate because when you listen to something like the PBS, which did an incredible production job on TV, PBS, man, continues to impress me with their ability on podcasts and their documentaries. And I really hope this does become a documentary. I think it's a fascinating story. I did have a couple questions, though, Chris. Sure. How did Jack get involved in this? Good question. So he, and it's a really actually amazing story, is that he saw a newspaper advertisement in the newspaper. And I don't know the specific time frame. I believe it was in the 90s. And the newspaper, uh, it wasn't an article. It was an actual paid advertisement. And it talked about, if you know these three boys, contact this number. They had a picture of the boys. And that was the picture of the three, the Klein brothers. And so this got got him, Jack, interested in in this whole scenario. So he went and talked with the family and come to find out that, that the parents and the mother specifically kept continually putting ads in the newspaper even 30, 40, 50 years after the fact trying to see if they can get any information from anybody about where those three boys and where their sons were possibly at. So that's how Jack got kind of thrown into it because he saw that newspaper uh, advertisement and then he he moved forward with an article on it wow so he just he was hooked instantly yes and then he got real involved with the family and, and started digging into the background and uh, we talked about the sheriff's deputies too they started getting involved and and they they talked about dna and things like that and so yeah it kind of evolved from that so again it's one of those things where when you get uh, some interest from the media and, and you say a podcast or even from a, a journalist that does uh, articles that kind of that kind of gets things rolling again so uh, that was a good yeah. scenario with the klein brothers as well I also love the story of, you know, and I'm a big support the blue. I love the story of the two detectives that are doing this case on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're they're trying to solve this. They have their own workloads. And then as a freelance assignment, they're they're trying to solve a murder that happened, you know, years ago in in a cold case realm. Well, Frankie, you want and, some similarities? We have detectives as well that are working within our inner core that are helping out as well that are not in that jurisdiction. So, again, it's great to have that outside support like like the like he does and like we do as well for um, those people that are actually professionals that know 
um, know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, we, we and, just and talk. Just put their, put the, yeah, exactly, man, and put themselves in such a you know, precarious situation, like situation where you know they're the thing that that, that I always loved about Pat Oswald, and if you're not familiar with the Golden State Killer and his wife, who dies um, unexpectedly. Uh, Pat Oswald is this great comedian. Well, his wife wrote a book on the Golden State Killer. He knew, she knew who it was. And she passes. And they find this guy. And she was right hmm. the whole time. And so when you, when you see the, you have the armchair sleuths, like Pat Oswald's wife, who was a true crime writer. And then you see these detectives in Minneapolis kind of, you know, doing their own thing to try to bring closure. I just think that that's fascinating. And that's, that's the stories that people need to hear about, like what these, what these detectives and what these cops are doing. Even on our team, you know, what they're trying to do to kind of help um, find certain people. I just find that, man, like this story, and I am actually in episode four of it, and I didn't want to listen to this interview, but I just didn't have time with the move and everything. So, But I am floored by his... Uh, his integrity, but also his his plight, man. Like the guy set a course from A to B, and it was, it is. I, I cannot wait to finish two and two and. Uh, and I don't want to give it away either because there were things that weren't mentioned that, you know, it's just so fascinating. And I love that it's the half hour. We used to do the half hours, you know, <laughs> but with COVID, we just like say let's go an hour, man. People are just they want more Frankie Chris time. Um, we hope that's the case because we might be going back to half hour next year. Um, <laughs> And everybody got really scared because I said next year. But um, we don't know when we're starting season three. Um, it won't be long. We, it won't be long. No, Me and Chris are, are definitely doing a lot of stuff. As you heard in the beginning of the show, the season finale to you is going to be something that's going to pique your interest. But before we get into wrapping this show, uh, which was one of my favorite shows because we had my best friend on. We mentioned Rich Yoakum. And then, you know, Jack and his amazing story about the, the Lost Boys Um but also, I think that one of the things that he brought up that really, and, and, I'm, and you asked the question, and I think everybody heard it too, because the minute he said 1955 Chicago, where three boys get abducted, get murdered, I think everybody, like, told you, Frank and Chrissy, I told you, you know, it's possible, like, that could happen. <laughs> and then you had, like, the other audience that's like, oh, I guess it can happen. Yeah. I, mean, I guess it did. And could you tell? Could you have anything on nineteen? Yeah, Chicago? so I did okay. some research on this and uh, was able to find a little bit, and uh, it's uh, just from a different uh, Google search that I did. But I, I want to read you this. This comes from a Wikipedia post. It says here uh, on October eighteenth, nineteen fifty-five, the naked bodies of three young boys, John Schusler, age thirteen. His brother Antoine Jr., age 11, and their friend Robert Peterson, age 14, were found in a ditch in Robinson's Woods Forest Preserve in the northwest side of Chicago. When they, when found, they had been missing for two days. The boys had traveled from Jefferson Park to downtown Chicago to see Walt Disney Productions' The African Lion at the Loop Theater. And that was on the afternoon of October 16th. Do you want me to stop? You, you mentioned, you just made a sigh there. <laughs> I, you know, if anybody knows me or seen me, they see my tattoos. The first thing I ask is, what are my tattoos on? And it's completely Disney. Mm. I am a huge Disney fan, and I know this film. I own this film. This film is actually on Disney+. Plus. So I was just like, Jesus. So, like, yeah. 
Okay, so I'll keep going. Uh, <laughs> nearly 40 years later, ATF agents investigating the February 7th, 1977 disappearance of Brock's Candy Harris, Helen Brock, were told by informants that Kenneth Hansen, one of Jane's employees, uh, had boasted a, of committing the murders and had threatened others that they would end up like the Peterson boy. A second informant had told the FBI of Hansen's boast in 1970s, but apparently no action was taken. It emerged that Hansen, who was 22 years old at the time, had met Peterson, which Peterson is the friend of these two brothers, and the Schuslers while they were hitchhiking after having last been seen by a classmate at the Monte Cristo bowling alley in uh, off of West Montrose, about eight miles from the Loop Theater. Hansen lured them into the idle hour, hour stables under the pretext of showing them horses. When Peterson discovered Hansen sexually abusing the Schusler brothers, Hansen had attacked all three and killed them. Jane, who this is that's what the Wikipedia post is about, is about this Jane person who owns the stables, had been enraged that Hansen, when he discovered what he had done, he was upset with him, obviously. However, realizing the murder on his property had the potential to ruin him, Jane concealed the crime. The bodies were put in a station wagon and disposed of. The original forensic investigators in the case believed that the marks on the body had been caused by the floor mats of a Packard station wagon that had been owned by both Hansen and Jane in 1955. The barn in which the murders allegedly occurred burned down on May 15, 1956, so less than a year later, in a suspected arson. And there's a little bit more, but uh, that's pretty much the the basis of it. So is there anything you caught in that, Frankie? Was he convicted? Um, that's a good question. Uh, yes. Uh, it says found guilty at a 2002 retrial with the subsequent information. Affirmation, affirmation, excuse me, of the verdict in a 2004 appeal. Hansen was sentenced to a life imprisonment. He died in Pontiac Correction Center in 2007. Pontiac's in Illinois, I think. Yes. Yeah. So let me let me give you the points. The the points. Did you catch the ages? Yeah. So the ages again, just in case the people didn't catch that. 11, 13, and fourteen. It's just that's the exact ages of Billy Joe and Craig. It's uncanny. <laughs> yes. Uh, and also, the other thing that I find very interesting about this is that uh, they talk about how um, how they they hit them. They, they realized what happened, and they disposed of the bodies. I, I'm just... So... Like, for me, yeah. it's, it's, there's a finality there, right? That... That... that is possible no longer probable it's happened before it could happen again there's a big possibility that that is exactly what happened to billy joey and craig well you have an so, example i'm sorry to interrupt do. there but you this do. is this is your example as you just mentioned this is the example that it is possible for somebody to abduct three people and, and these kids were the exact same age as craig joey and billy and they got lured into a horse stable yep. so again we don't know the mentality we do know that they were known to hitchhike but 
it's possible that something could have attracted them. It's not like these boys were old enough where they're like, something doesn't seem right here. This, we can tell 12 years before this even happened, where you would even think, okay, maybe abduction and, and child molestation wasn't as big in the 50s and 60s. Well, heck, we got an example in 55 now. Who's to say it didn't happen in 67? Yeah, and I've, and I've said this before on the show. It was actually more dangerous in the 50s and 60s to have your kids play in the front yard than it is today. Yeah. Like the statistics show that more abductions happen. And you know why? We don't have the super information highway. We don't have the internet. We don't have this exposure rate that we have today. And that is not only a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. Um, we, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the exposure that I stopped posting pictures of my daughter. I just stopped. Yeah. Like, I don't have many on there anymore. I used to put her on there all the time. And the ones that I do have, I kept. But she doesn't even look like that anymore. I mean, she's grown up so much. But, you know, you always keep guard. You always have a sense of self. You always have the idea that, you know, could this happen? Well, it's the 50s and 60s. And I love that. I love that. It's like, you know, no one really knows the statistics. They just... Figuratively speaking, they think of the 50s, they think of the nuclear family, they think of the station wagon, they think of the, the family trip every summer. But unfortunately, that wasn't it. Like, they dealt with the same things that we deal with. And they dealt with it at a much critical, harder, and it's always traumatizing. But I would think that it's even more traumatizing when you don't have any leads any suspects and you don't have communication you don't have what we have today yeah. we don't have the responses of our, our amber alerts we don't have our face we don't have our facebook and our twitter and and one of the articles i was reading about that recently was in nypd which huge fan september 11th you know that just happened this week it was it was a big time for me i have a lot of family in new york so you know, to see that kind of come up in the anniversary. NYPD actually doesn't rely on 911 calls. They rely more on Twitter because they get at it. At NYPD, there's a shooting. At NYPD, is a robbing. They get at it on Twitter. Wow. And this is fascinating, what we've been able to do and achieve in today's society. It's only a matter of time before we even have, you know, more technology that can actually help expose this type of criminal activity. And, you know, and speaking of that, Chris, um, moving into technology, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, so anyway, I just, well, before we wrap up here, I do want to point yeah. out one thing is that and I just saw a post today and, 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 and everybody has their opinion. Yeah, and, and that's great. And that's what we encourage, especially in our discussion groups, is to, to tell us what you feel. But don't don't automatically discount anything um, because, you know, Julie, again, going back to the season, Julie Angel was so strong. And, and me and you uh, both came out of the Julie Angel stuff saying they're probably in a cave. But then you yep. see this 1955, you see the Klein brothers in 1951, you're seeing examples of three boys that match up to the similarities of what happened in 67. So, again, just keep that open mind that it's possible. I mean... You know, I'll have percentages next in our next episode of where I'm at, but yeah. I mean, with everything, Chris, I mean, with the three 
boys being abducted and stuff in 51, 55. And then we, we always forget uh, the West Memphis 3, too, which is another cold case, which they tried to solve, which they think they have leads in. Never solved. The boys that were originally uh, served time for went by the Alfred Law. So they had to admit that they did it but then they were set free, which is the stupidest law. Hmm. Uh, this is the same law that affected Michael Peterson and the death of his wife. He also had to do the Alfred Raw law. The Alfred law basically states that you admit to a crime and then you cannot, you're free to go, but you have no, you have no authority to sue the state for wrongful imprisonment. Hmm. And okay. so that, that's something that is, is another topic altogether. But, you know, what I find that I, but I believe this episode's a little long because we had a lot of introductions. We had a, a huge interview. But next week, our season, well, in two weeks, our season finale, I think will really shed some light on a couple of different things. But before I wrap the show, Chris, did you have anything else? Yeah. So we talk about all this. We talk about the abduction scenario and, and all that is a possibility still. It's still in our minds and maybe hopefully it's still in yours because we don't want to discount any possibilities. I also want to throw this out at you. We just had, speaking of discussion group, we had somebody contact us in the last few weeks, said check out this uh, certain person, and we did some research on this certain person, and we do have a child molester that was involved with the search. And we'll tell you about that next. Yeah. At the so you guys have a lot to look forward to. We finally have a suspect, Chris, that was on the ground, part of the search, that later gets convicted, child molestation dies in prison but he died in prison chris seven years ago could this have been the likely candidate that might have had or been the meaning behind those boys going missing so once again as chris just said don't rule anything out don't be so pot committed into one area we can't we've changed a lot you've seen it this season so from all of us here at the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast, I'm Frankie Campbelletta. I'm Chris Ketters. We'll be seeing you. Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give. When an irresistible force such as you needs an old immovable object like me. You can bet as sure as you live Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give When an irrepressible smile such as yours Forms an old implacable heart such as mine